This is On the Fence Physio, a podcast designed to, one, stimulate intellectual conversation around the nuances of gray topics in physical therapy, two, keep a group of physical therapists and physical therapy students entertained for 30 to 40 minutes, and three, fail to do either of those things. If you are looking for legitimate medical advice, do not look here. Please seek out the opinion of a legitimate licensed medical provider. Enjoy. Hola and bienvenido a la otro episode en la cerca physio. Para inglés, presiona dos. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of On the Fence Physio. I am your host, as always, Andy Wiseman, physical therapist in the Maryland and DC region. I am joined by a special guest today for a special edition of the uh, podcast, a student edition. I am joined by third year physical therapy student from Marymount University, Henry Iregeta. How are you doing today, Henry? Doing good. Excited to be here. Great. Be part of this podcast. I'm glad you're excited. At least one of us is. <laughs> so we uh Came up with a research question, something that you were interested in. Can you tell us what your uh, question was for this project? Yeah, so I was uh, interested in looking at those utilizing blood flow restriction training status post-knee surgery help improve quad strength and help patients return to their prior level function less time since surgery compared to standard care. Ooh, a high-pressure topic for sure. Any reason why you chose to pick this as your uh, topic? I don't want to cut you off. Well, so I chose this uh, topic because I'm just interested in strength. That's a big thing, being a personal trainer and mm -hmm. uh, weightlifting. I guess trying to be a weightlifting athlete. Mm -hmm. uh, strength is a big passion of mine. So I know blood flow restriction It's picking up again, getting a lot of mm -hmm. attention. Um, so I wanted to look more into what does the research say about utilizing blood flow restriction in the rehab setting. That sounds great. I guess uh, I'll give you the floor. What did you find? Um, answers to your question. I'm very interested to learn more about this stimulating topic. So I just want to take it a step back, kind of introduce a little bit of blood flow restriction if there's anyone that's still mm -hmm. not sure. quite familiarized with what it is. And so blood flow restriction training is just a process of using a tourniquet that occludes venous outflow and, re and restricts arterial inflow um, to the muscle. And this, a lot of theories are out there in terms of how does this create strength and hypertrophy in the muscle. And so one of the things is that it creates an anaerobic environment which promotes muscle hypertrophy by upregulating up cell signaling, protein synthesis, and ultimately uh, myogenic proliferations and growth hormone factors that all kind of induce this change of strength and hypertrophy. Uh, did you find anything interesting about those mechanisms? Because I do find it very um, intriguing that this is one of the realms of physical therapy that we're actually doing the bench work. We're getting and looking at very much a chemical, you know, like an hormonal change in the body, a physiological response, and we're trying to pair that to the actual outcome, which is a strength change, and trying to show that, you know, we are causing these specific changes that then lead to these clinical effects, or a great way of saying, like, we're trying to measure the efficacy of these treatments. Um, did you find anything interesting about those proposed mechanisms? So, no, a lot of the articles I looked into still kind of just really did a 
general kind of concept overview of how this creates that change. Um, none of them got into depth about explaining like, mm -hmm. with certainty this is where um, how blood flow restriction actually creates yeah. that change. And so I think that's one of the things that they propose as to later studies looking into what exactly. Oh, actually, uh, a lot of those already exist. You just got to know where to look. You got to get out of the physical therapy journals and get into a little bit of the physiology and applied physiology journals. So just for a couple of... Um, couple of you know key points from there. A, a 2013 article by Schoenfield um, in Sports Medicine, so that's uh, one of our PT publications, was looking at the um, amount of growth hormone change and found that um, doing BFR but not having exercise, not doing exercise with it, didn't change the growth hormone level. So doing no BFR versus BFR with no exercise on either group didn't change growth hormone rates. So BFR on its own, not necessarily changing growth hormone. Um, and then in the Applied Physiology Research, Journal of Applied Physiology, a Pierce article in 2006 found that adding um, exogenous growth hormone, so looking at not you know doing it through BFR, mm -hmm. but just adding growth hormone taken into the muscle um, through injection, didn't actually change muscle protein synthesis. So mm -hmm. growth hormone in itself doesn't necessarily change you know, for bigger muscle. And then um, the other interesting one that usually gets brought up is the IGF-1 um, yes. hormone. That's it's talked that. about, right? Yep. And it is increased by occlusion. So, like, if you do do occlusive training, you see a greater amount of IGF. Um, but then the findings are kind of mixed on whether increased IGF changes muscle protein synthesis. There are um, some articles that say yeah, some that say nah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard because it's like, hey, we're doing all this great mechanistic work, but we haven't really nailed down, like, oh, this is the mechanism. It's, it's one of those situations where we have a lot of these clinical effects studies, which I think you're going to be talking about where it's like hey we see this great effect but how does that happen why does it happen it's tough and that's kind of what yeah. the research was like pointing at. it's like yeah they mentioned growth hormone yeah. factor which helps yeah. like with the igf but again like going back to what you said it's like how is that change actually occurring mm -hmm. is like still kind of yeah not not clear in the literature murky yeah. huh it's not as clear as water not as clear mm -hmm. as water yeah blood is thicker than water Sure is. <laughs> All right. So yeah, going into a little bit more of uh, what I found in terms of what the literature says. So blood flow restriction training, looking at this article with uh, after knee arthroscopy, it was a randomized control a pilot study, and they were just comparing, again, physical therapy, BFR without uh, PT to standard care. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they had 12 sessions of supervised physical therapy um, and all the subjects follow the same post-operative protocol with the difference being that the BFR group did three additional exercises and those three additional exercises were the ones that where they used the BFR cuffs. And so mm -hmm. those three exercises were a leg press, leg ex extension, and a reverse press. And both groups started the protocol two weeks post-op. And so they went, they underwent strength testing, they did physical function outcome testing, and they also did a patient reported outcome survey at the beginning and at the end of the study. Um, and so what they did in terms of, I guess, the parameters for blood flow restriction was that they did an estimated one rep max 
for those three exercises, and then they took a 30% uh, weight from their one rep max. And the dosage for BFR, they did the four sets of 30 reps, then 15, 15, 15 reps, okay. um, with the 30 second rest uh, period in between those sets, and the inflation stayed on throughout the entire exercise. And they allowed one minute of rest between each exercise that they were doing. Okay. And so... How did that group do? So that group did, they improved. Uh, so they definitely improved in strength. They also, especially like quadricep extension strength, and they measured strength using a biodex okay. uh, dynamometer, as well as knee flexion. And they reported that uh, the BFR group showed a twofold strength improvement compared with the control group. Mm -hmm. And so going back to the uh, functional outcomes, they also found that there was the functional outcomes that they did were the self-selected walking velocity test, mm -hmm. a five times sit to stand, the four square step test, and a timed stair ascent. Mm -hmm. And they also found that there was uh, a greater significant improvement uh, compared to the control group. Um, and so the conclusion was that there was greater changes seen with the BFR group in this study compared to the control group. Cool. Do you see anything about their methodology that maybe could have been better, could have been worse, could have been... Oh, yeah. There was like, uh, for me, it's like drawing that conclusion of adding those three additional exercises. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we know how much of effect did those, just having three exercises without BFR would have done? Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a great question. That they're getting more volume yeah. in their training program and... That if you do an A versus A plus B, you know, like usually the A plus B group tends to do a bit better, especially when it comes to making change, right? doing more sometimes gets you more. So that, yeah, that's interesting. Um, a lot of outcomes to look at, but a lot of them were very functional. So even if the patient, even if the effects were non-specific effects of like, mm -hmm. I feel stronger, right? Maybe, but they actually did measure strength with a with a torque production so that might at least rule out for some of the uh increased time because a lot of times we like to see time match that both groups are getting the same amount of time with the same therapist because that takes out that non-specific of hey if you're just a really personable therapist but if uh if we're saying like hey we're not even going to look at how the patient feel about things just how they perform like hey you know that takes away some of those non-specific effects i don't think um my personality can necessarily make someone make produce more strength on a biodex. I would like to think so. Right. <laughs> It'd be nice if it worked that way, right? Yeah. <laughs> that therapeutic alliance yeah. is key. Um, so yeah, no, and like the, as going back to that, like that subjective component, they also, in terms of like the pain ratings and uh, the thigh girth, like patients didn't feel like reports saying like, hey, I felt better mm -hmm. in terms of that, but with the functional outcomes, you can measure those yeah. uh, improvements. The one thing I did also look into was just uh, how much of a difference there was with these functional outcomes. And I just took example the five times sit to stand test, and yeah, both group groups and improved with the minimal detectable change. Mm -hmm. um, and really, the difference between the time was like one to two seconds. So saying like significant to me was like okay, how much of a difference? If, both of them did improve from their initial, the final outcome was only two to three seconds of a difference between those two groups. 
Yeah. And like one to two seconds can really matter a lot if you're talking about like a hundred meter dash. But if you're talking about just going up a flight of stairs, one or two seconds may not make a whole lot of impact on your patient's life. If you said, hey, you can come to therapy, I'll work you hard for 12 visits, and you'll be able to go up the stairs one second faster than somebody who doesn't do all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're timing each time you go up, go up the stairs, right? Yeah, a lot of stairs I do, maybe. I don't know. That could be a personal goal. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So um, then another article I looked into was, um, again, BFR with after ACLR. So... Mm-hmm. ACL reconstruction, and that was a prospective study um, that determined the effects of. Do we want to do? They want to determine the effects of uh, introducing low load muscular training with blood flow restriction during the first sixteen weeks after reconstruction, given that quad strength is a big thing with ACR, mm-hmm. uh, ACLR yeah. mm-hmm. uh, patients. So. For this group, the methodology that they had, they took in 44 subjects and they divided them into two groups and they also followed the same training schedule. And so the way they uh, applied the BFR was they used an air tourniquet, uh, which was worn to the proximal part of the thigh on the operate side, and they used a standard pressure of 180 milligrams per mercury um, to induce that restriction of blood flow. And some of the exercises that they did, they had them do straight leg raises, uh, hip abduction exercises. They also specified a hip adduction with a ball squeeze, half squat, step ups. They used uh, TheraBand as well as a, a knee bending walking exercise. So, and so going into how they set the parameters for this, uh, they did it six times weekly. So six times a week, and they and they um, added weight throughout throughout each section or after a couple of weeks um, since surgery. So during the first eight weeks there was like no loading, and then like weeks two through four they would add a kilogram depending on the exercise, and then weeks five through eight they added two kilograms of weight, and it also varied with each exercise, and they also used a biodex as well to measure strength changes. And they specify the angular velocities at which they did the strength measurements. Mm-hmm. So one of them was at 60 degrees per second, and the other one was 180 degrees per second. And so what they ended up finding was that there was, at four months, there was a significant uh, increase in muscular strength for the BFR group compared to uh, the control group, which was not using BFR. Austin. Uh, and um, those uh, isokinetic tests, right? So that's the uh, degrees per second. So um, getting isokinetic data is kind of the gold standard when it comes to um, ACLR um, rehab. So that's great that they were collecting that kind of data. And again, like that's not something you can, you know, like say it was a nonspecific effect if you actually changed those parameters. So that's pretty good. Yeah, so that, I mean, going back to that, that was... It's definitely something in a similar vein, right? Gotta get that pump. Gotta get your pump on. I will pump you up. And so, like, also going back a little bit to kind of that loading, they also kind of 
concluded that uh, oh no, that was that was study. Moving on. Moving on. The next one. Sounds good. So then another study was looking at kind of uh, more of the parameters of blood flow restriction training with Mm -hmm. ACL injury, and so they kind of just um, what they did. They were trying to look at the outcomes really as well, like physical function, physical fitness and training and how those parameters affected BFR, uh, affected like recovery from ACL surgery. And what they found is they concluded like there's not enough studies for actual physical function, which was one of a component of my PICO questions. Hmm. How fast do these patients return to their prior level of function? And they also concluded that there's not a lot out there on, in the research which was also my finding. Like I had a difficult mm-hmm. time trying to find strength and how that relates back to function. Right. It's hard to make lemonade if life hasn't even given you lemons yet. Right? Or if you only have one lemon. <laughs> it's been restricted. Yeah, it's been restricted. <laughs> then maybe the research has a little too much restriction. You need to get some more uh, outflow. And that was a... That was another outflow thing. of cash. That's oh, probably how you fix it. Yeah. Probably, yeah. And so... That was the other thing that they also concluded that a lot of the current research in BFR tends to be short term. So at six, nine, 12 months mm-hmm. uh, or weeks, I should say not 12 months. Um, so there isn't that prolonged, hey, how does BFR really help in the end if there is a difference in terms of returning these patients back to their prior level of function? Sure. I mean, I mean, we could we could sit here and make the argument that blood flow restriction training may be the most useful in early stages of rehab, whereas later stages of rehab, maybe it's not as useful. So probably if I was a BFR researcher, I'd be looking to do shorter term, right? Mm-hmm. Show that show that what we're doing is making a difference in the short term, because in the long term, it probably does even out. So BFR may have a role in getting people back to sport, but it may not get them back there necessarily any faster than traditional therapy, but it may get them stronger faster in a short-term period, which could be useful in somebody who's trying to get back to at least some level of training or practice with the team, even if they're not fully ready for, you know, return to their competitive sport. So there could be a role in the short-term data because the short-term data can give us short-term answers <laughs> right and i agree it's good yeah. to see what it does in the short term but also hey let's look mm-hmm. at you know absolutely how does it impact long term does it really right is it still useful in the later stages yeah, yeah. return to sport in this case or because that definitely yeah. changes the utility because if it doesn't make a difference in the long term of things like that decreases how valuable it is and how much providers and uh payers should be paying for it yeah, no, exactly. That, that's mm-hmm. kind of the big thing. Like it, it being uh, coming back to resurfacing again, getting a lot of attention. It's like, hey, does a clinic really need to invest in BFR to provide better outcomes for mm-hmm. for patients? Yeah. And so they also another thing that they found was again that variability in terms of there is no standardized protocol with BFR. There different ranges between using 20% to 40% of someone's one rep max and then going back to how many repetitions they found that it ranges from 20 repetitions to 60 repetitions. So kind of trying to narrow down that exercise dosage to create those results. It's still kind of uh, spectrum and, and varied. And 
I think that's also another thing that potentially is why some clinicians may not want to use BFR. It's there's just not enough uh, standardized protocols mm-hmm. uh, to be utilizing it, which also kind of makes the research a little bit like comparing things like, hey, was this effective yeah. or not? does make it hard to do a review when everybody uses different parameters. So just moving on in terms of another article that looked at uh, how BFR, if BFR worked um, when there was high intensity exercise, so increasing that uh, one rep max or percentage of one rep max compared to that, what has kind of been established to be 20 to 40% of someone's one rep max. and so what they did was uh, they took a group of, again, ACL patients at, uh, and they randomized them into four intervention groups. So one only did concentric exercises, the other one did eccentric, and then the other group did concentric with the BFR, and then the fourth group did eccentric with the BFR. And so they did this study about eight eight weeks from their surgery. And then they also looked at uh, strength gains at 10 weeks postoperatively. So what they found was that um, there was no significant difference between these group changes from the preoperative to the post-intervention for the maximal isokinetic knee extension or uh, and um, isometric knee extension as well. And so kind of just backtrack a little bit in terms of uh, how they did like their protocol. So the first four weeks of the rehab protocol was just kind of focusing on, again, ma- uh, minimizing pain and swelling, trying to get that full range of motion and improving that quadricep muscle control and achieving full weight bearing. And then during that second month to fourth month, that's where they started to focus in on increasing strength of the quadriceps, the hamstrings, and the hip musculature overall, as well as improving single leg balance and trying to translate those gains to more of the functional uh, exercises. And so what they did was that they had a leg press, um, or the exercise, I should say, it was a leg press and they did 15 single leg repetitions with a load equal to 100% of their body weight. They also did a single leg forward hop to measure, to try to get that 95% symmetry. And they also did, they looked at a two leg deep squat um, and they observed that more from a qualitative standpoint than quantitative. And then as well as a single leg deep squat, and they were looking at the quality of symmetry for those movements. And so uh, in terms of the single leg press, kind of more specific into that, to what they did, uh, they set it at a range. So from 60 degrees to 20 degrees of knee flexion was within that working range. Um, And then they also asked like uh, the group to perform like that was doing only the concentric, they kind of just did that concentric movement and then um, uh, obviously uh, took away the eccentric component of that since there was an eccentric mm-hmm. group. And so they had them do those repetitions for 
two minutes. Um, sorry, there's repetition for 15. And they also had them do a two minute rest break and repeat that again to kind of get the better of those two scores. And so uh, the other thing that they also did. That's all right. So they were doing a lot of stuff, right? A lot of measures to get an idea of how strong were they. And they were trying to separate out these concentric and eccentric groups, you know, to see if there's a difference because um, a lot of people talk about the differences in hypertrophy for eccentric exercises versus concentric exercise, how important that is. So they were trying to just pair all these things out. That's why they created four groups um, to try to say like, hey, are any of these things better than the other? But in the end, kind of all washed out. I mean, they all, everybody got stronger. They uh, didn't see a whole lot of difference between them. And uh, that's because there's lots of ways to get stronger. And that BFR is maybe a way to get stronger, but based on these findings, it's not a more effective way, at least within this time frame with this patient cohort, than doing it without. I mean, especially when you're doing a consistent load across, because all these patients got loaded at a similar percentage of their one rep max. Exactly, and it right. kind of goes back yeah. to like, as like previous days, yeah. that variability. It's like, yeah, it's all over the place. So, um, trying to find really what is optimal, like, yeah, could have just you know dosage influence maybe the gains that they made or or not. So yeah, and um, maybe with this group, if they had done the BFR and fifteen percent of their one rep max. Would they have had the same change as the people who did BFR and a higher percentage than one rep max? But we, we can't draw that conclusion from this, but what we can say that when working at similar loads, BFR doesn't necessarily add anything of value, whether it's concentric or eccentric work. All right. Any, um, any other interesting ones you want to talk about? Um, lots, of, lots of research out there. Some of it high quality, some of it not so good quality. <laughs> Yeah, so but, uh, that's uh, that's our PT literature for us. So the other thing, um, trying to find these strength studies uh, was limited. So because a lot of them also talked about kind of just uh, the cross-sectional area of okay. of the quad muscle um, that BFR also helps improve the cross-sectional area compared to uh, groups that. You guys don't train with BFR. And mm -hmm. why do you think they uh, some groups would measure cross-sectional area? Well, there is a relationship between like force production in terms of cross-sectional area. Right. Like, the bigger the cross-sectional area, the typically, typically yeah, yeah, they get, yeah. the better uh, chance there is for increased force production. Right. Um, so yeah, so another study looking into it, uh, what they did it was a randomized controlled trial and. They looked at, they measured cross-sectional area 15 weeks um, since surgery of ACLR. And what they did, they also inflated blood flow restriction, uh, the cuff to 180 milligrams of milliliters of mercury um, compared to a low, re and they compared it to a low resistance um, group. So they didn't, that group wasn't doing any high intensity training, but still had low resistance. And so, um, what they found was that they suggested like that the short durations of like 13 days of looking into that cross-sectional area, um, 
comparing the blood flow restriction training group uh, to the not blood flow restriction group uh, does help, doesn't really help increase cross-sectional area at 13 days, but at 15 weeks, they definitely saw those improvements, which kind of goes mm -hmm. with the science of, hey, it takes time to build. does take a little time. Um, when they were looking at change in cross-sectional area, were they looking at just a total number, an absolute number of change, or were they doing it in relation to like the patient's like body habitus? Like, are they doing it as a percentage of change? Because it's like somebody who has a, let's say, like, 20 inch quad versus somebody who has a 40 inch quad, you know, like them changing two inches, it's, you know, 10% for one, it's, you know, 5% for the other. Like, is that, were they doing it off like a percentage volume change or were they doing it off an absolute number? They were doing an absolute number in this mm -hmm. study. They weren't yeah. looking at the. So you could see how that yeah. could obviously change things too. You know, it's like, hey, if we're looking at an absolute number of change, you know, that could be highly variable amongst people and it also doesn't take into account like you know cross-sectional area is useful for you know seeing muscular change which is what they're trying to prove here maybe is the efficacy of can we change muscle tissue um but that doesn't mean it's all lean muscle mass there also can be especially post-operatively with atrophy can have fatty infiltrate into mm. muscle and you know maybe um like muscle quality should have been what's looked at because it's like maybe even the people who didn't have as much of a cross-sectional area change if they replace them with their like fatty infiltrate or um, neovascularization with lean muscle mass but their cross-sectional area didn't change I mean they're probably still producing more force so it'd be interesting if they had also compared like the cross-sectional area to a force production curve yeah so, no wow well, right? so that's what I was like trying to get into yeah. was hoping to find a yeah. study that really uh, took into consideration, hey, the cross-sectional area, and let's actually compare that to how much force. Yeah, that's a lot of work. <laughs> Funds are being restricted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's hard out there. So. so, yeah, so that was like, that was another thing in what I found in mm -hmm. the literature. It's like, hey, that's not really out there, and I feel like that would be kind of helpful to to know. Right. Um, so for all our PhD researchers out there, let's get a study that looks at change in cross-sectional area and force production and see how related those two are. And if you can do that in a BFR group and a non-BFR group, that would be especially appreciated by Mr. Hetta. Got to roll that out. Lo siento, soy gringo. Alright, so Moving on to the other article that uh, look at the comparison of BFR training again versus uh, non-occlusive uh, patients. Um, they looked at ACLR and they also took into uh, NEOA as well. And I kind of just focused a little bit more on the ACLR given that my PICO question was more related mm -hmm. to surgery. So it was a systematic review and they just wanted to investigate the effects of BFR training on again quadriceps cross-sectional area. They looked into pain perception and function and quality of life in these patients. And what they found is they took a couple of studies um, and then they looked at the fact that, again, they pointed out the variability of these systematic studies that some were focused on like two weeks, eight weeks. There was like measurements taken at eight weeks and 16 weeks and then some just post-op uh, post and then at 16 weeks. And so 
what they found was that uh, in one of the studies, um, both groups of, that consisted of men and women for ACLR who performed like the high load training, and this included like concentric and eccentric exercises, that after eight weeks of treatment, there was like no significant difference um, from before the operation. So they took, again, measurements um, prior to uh, surgery. Uh, to so they found no differences before operation to after the intervention of BFR uh, compared to the control group or the maximum isokinetic force or isometric forces as well. This, that was interesting, kind of putting a little bit of a dent, like, hey, all this research is showing like hypertrophy and strength gains, but this one kind of said, no, it's not. They didn't really find any significant mm -hmm. changes to report. And then... They also looked at uh, the International Knee Documentation Committee, that questionnaire for like the pain perception, mm -hmm. and they also found that there was like no significant improvements between the groups either. So that was kind of interesting as well, take, taking on that perspective of pain as sometimes that could limit hey. participation. Well, for the BFR mm -hmm. people, that's got to be kind of deflating. Yeah, right. Not enough pressure. Not enough pressure. All right. Well, that's sometimes what we find. And hey, it's great when we sometimes get negative things published where the findings are, there's no real difference. It's hard to get those published sometimes, but I'm glad people are out there doing that kind of work and getting that stuff kind of published. And so now looking at another systematic review of, as well as for patients just undergoing knee surgery in general, they took a... Uh, and they found 10 studies that were related to ACL reconstruction and then the one uh, then one study that looked into just the knee arthroscopy, which was a study I talked about towards the beginning. And really their discussion in terms of what they found was that a uh, cross-sectional area of like the quadricep muscles um, does actually significantly improve with the BFR, like group compared to the control group. Um, but again, they kind of put that uh, limitation on that there's like this variation of the methodology. Uh, it's really hard to say like how effective or um, what's not effective and like what is causing, I guess, those changes in uh, the cross-sectional area, mm -hmm. trying to establish like that procedure or that exercise dish is, is really effective compared to the ones that are... Um, Why do you think there's so much um, heterogeneity amongst the parameters for BFR? Like, why are so many people using different pressures, different rep schemes, different uh, times under pressure, times under tension? Why do you think there's so much variability amongst these things? I think it kind of relates back to just kind of, I guess, those uh, exercise like principles in terms of trying to create physiological changes, many ways about going about going to create those changes. Like, as we talk about in terms of just, you know, normal strength training, you want to keep your sets kind of low and then uh, sets, you can keep them sets high and keep the intensity high, your reps low. But again, it's like a spectrum of like strength to hypertrophy to like muscular endurance. And so I feel like that's kind of influencing a lot of the, BFR, like exercise dosage kind of 
figuring out that spectrum, like what really causes this change is like. Sure. Yeah. So different goals, right? That mm-hmm. that's that's a reasonable way. Uh, I I've found that a lot of uh, different interventions in physical therapy have highly variable like treatment approaches too. Something like dry needling or instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization. There's high there's high variability amongst how these things are performed for interventional strategies. Um, a lot of based on where your training was, right? And um, right. having sat through two different like blood flow restriction courses, I've seen two different methodologies for how they go about dosing this stuff. And they all had good reasons to support their own. But it's like if we're having a heterogeneity at the training level saying like, hey, you should do it this way and these are our reasons why. And then you go to a different class and they say, no, 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 you need to do it this way. And these are our reasons why. Um, that can lead to some confusion. And I think uh, some physical therapists bristle at the idea of a one-size-fits-all. You should do it this way right. and this is the one way that works because we're taught, hey, you should tailor every intervention to your patient. Right, because uh, good patient-centered care is not doing the same thing for every patient; it's mixing it up. Um, but what it, what it hurts then is our it's our ability to understand what the literature is saying. Because when we have a high amount of variability customizing per patient, it gets really hard to make strong conclusions. So maybe we just need to delineate there somewhere. We need to say like, hey, for the research purposes, we need to do it standardized, and then for your patient, you can modify as needed. Yeah, no, like, yeah, to, like, the patient goal is definitely going to dictate, like, what is the, what is trying to be ultimately yeah. achieved, that's going to yeah. dictate, I guess, parameters. Yeah, okay. Then, so, to kind of, like, put you on the spot here, then, um, you've, you've found all this resources, you've shared a lot of good literature with us, and we really appreciate it, um, getting a lot of good resources, and all these acts, articles will be posted in the show notes, um, citations for you. We can't post them for free. That would be illegal. Um, but we will share the links to these articles. Um, how is this going to affect your practice? You're going to soon be your own practitioner, hopefully. Um, school goes continues to go well. Um, how will you be using blood flow restriction training in your post-operative knee patients? So, you know, that's something uh, after doing this research that I, like, I really started to think about because I think prior to diving into the literature, I was like, Blood flow restriction is awesome. I want to use it. Now it's just, now I've come to realize, hey, I don't think maybe I need to use this or if I don't have it, like I'm going to go get it. Um, I think it's, again, looking at it long term in the patient's goal, that's really going to dictate, is this something that I really want to use? And if it's available, yeah, I'm going to be more open to using it. And as the evidence shows, it does help improve strength and cross-sectional area of a muscle. Um, but I don't think I'm going to be promoting it. It's just going to be another tool in the toolbox as a lot of these modalities are in PT. It's never lose sight of like, Hey, let's get this stronger. And there's many ways about, um, going about that, getting patients stronger and inducing those changes. And this is just another path that you can use to get patients back to where they want to so, would it be fair to say then that after uh, looking into all these resources, um, challenging your own biases a little bit, you went from firmly on one side to maybe a little bit on the fence? 
I would, yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate this great presentation. Um, it's been a joy having you as a student in the clinic, and we look forward to following your career as a young rising star in the physical therapy world. Um, this is Andy Wiseman signing off for On the Fence Physio. And remember, in physical therapy, it is always okay to be on the fence.